0: If you're a guest with us, we've been uh, studying through the Book of Psalms this summer. We've come to the second half of Psalm 22, and I'll speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, the resurrected savior, Psalm 22. And we'll begin reading in verse 22. And this is what God's word says. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. There are two major divisions to Psalm 22 In part one verses one to twenty one describe in striking detail the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is all alone on the cross crying out in agony. The second division verses twenty two to thirty one provide a completely different view of Christ. We see him no longer alone. But in the midst of a large company, his suffering is over, and he is praising God and shouting in victory, claiming the worship of the entire world. Suddenly, dramatically, the tone of Psalm 22 changes from prayer to praise, from suffering to triumph. But how do we account For this dramatic shift between verse 21 and verse 22, there is only one possible explanation. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, in sovereign power and glory, saved His one and only Son, not from death, but out of death. He did not rescue the suffering king from the cross. He rescued him from the tomb. And that is why the resurrection of Christ changes everything. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, we have a future, a living and abiding hope. We have peace, forgiveness, joy, acceptance an inheritance, a purpose, and so much more. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation for everything in our lives. And in the second half of this psalm, David prophesies about Christ's resurrection, showing us that it is the fuel for our very lives. And I want you to note with me, first of all, in verses 22 to 24, that the resurrected Savior fuels our worship. In these verses, the psalmist moves from a plea of deliverance to an affirmation of praise to God for his faithfulness. In Hebrew, Verse 21 ends with a one-word shout that simply says in the Hebrew language, You have heard me. And this is the reason for this praise that we see take place in verses 22 to 24. God is praised because God has remembered His afflicted Son. And God has heard and answered His prayer for help. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, summarizes verses 22 to 24 saying that these verses describe the spread of joy, and that's why we see this praise break out at this point in the psalm. And in verse 22, we see the Christ who praises. David writes, "'I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation,' I will praise you. Now this verse, verse 22, is quoted in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22 and verse 22, and he applies it to referring to Christ. And this is what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why, listen to the language, he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And both the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews picture the Lord Jesus Christ in this verse singing praises to God the Father in in the midst of a congregation of what the psalmist and Hebrews refers to as brothers. And this language of brothers is significant, friends, for without the resurrection of Christ... We could not use this designation, brothers. The Apostle Paul reminds us that those who are called by God and saved by Jesus Christ become joint heirs with Him. They share in His resurrection life and He calls them brothers. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And as a result... Verse 22 of Psalm 22 is a prophecy concerning the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ when He appeared in the upper room to His disciples. And He appeared later to 500 at once. And He appeared ultimately to those who are in heaven. This is how Paul described those appearances in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 8. Brothers, He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one to untimely born, he appeared also to me. And if you look at verse 22 carefully... The psalmist wants us to have this picture in our minds of this great congregation that is gathered together as the resurrected Savior stands in their midst and as verse 22 says, proclaims to all of these brothers the name of God the Father. He stands in their midst and he proclaims the character of God and the faithfulness of God, and the attributes of God, and the perfections of God. And he declares to all of his brothers that God the Father is faithful and true, and you need look no further than my resurrection appearance in your midst. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine what these people were thinking? The one who in verses 1 to 21 had been tortured, pierced, humiliated, abandoned, killed, now stands in the midst of a company of people, a congregation of his brothers, leading them in praise to God for the mighty victory that has been won through the cross. And we see in verse 22, the Christ who prays. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 23, this Christ who prays issues a call to praise. And the psalmist writes, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Jesus was previously surrounded by a company of evildoers as he hung on the cross. And now he says in verse 23, then he is surrounded by a group of people who fear the Lord. And in verse 23, this resurrected Savior is calling the offspring of Jacob and the offspring of Israel to worship Yahweh, the God who is faithful to keep His covenant with His chosen people. And you'll notice in verse 23, look at the language carefully. The command is given by Christ to fear the Lord and to praise the Lord and to glorify the Lord and to stand in all of the Lord. For all of these responses are appropriate responses of worship directed to a God of such a great salvation. And John, in his gospel, he reminds us what the psalmist is teaching us here that Jesus Christ not only died for the church, he not only died for the Gentiles, he also died for the people of Israel. And in John chapter 11, verses 50 to 52, This is what John writes, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And here in verse 23, we see the resurrected Christ speaking to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, challenging them and calling them to stand up and to stand in awe and praise and reverence and worship of the God of their salvation. And while today the nation of Israel lives in spiritual blindness, Zechariah says that one day there is coming a day when they'll see their Messiah and they'll believe and they'll be saved and they will join the Gentiles in praising the Lord for their salvation. And Jesus, in verse 23, calls them to this worship. And then you'll notice in verse 24 that he gives the cause for this praise. Notice carefully what he says in verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, And he's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. What is the rationale of verse 23 for people to stand in fear of Yahweh, to praise Yahweh, to glorify Yahweh, to revere Yahweh? What is the rationale for this kind of worship, for this posture of worship, for these acts of worship? Well, verse 24 is the rationale. The God who answers His forsaken Son allowed the affliction of the afflicted. But notice what the text says. He didn't despise this affliction that Christ endured. He didn't abhor it. God the Father used it and will continue to use the affliction that He poured out upon His Son for good and great purposes. We often associate affliction with the disfavor of God. And it's true that God sometimes uses affliction to punish and sometimes uses affliction to discipline. But notice what verse 24 says. God the Father does not despise affliction. And specifically, He does not despise the affliction of His Son. He uses this affliction for good and great purposes. And it is in this sense that the words of the prophet Isaiah were fulfilled. Listen, you know the verse well. Listen to Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it was the will, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And notice the text carefully, friends. God the Father's deliverance of His Son is not described in detail in verses 23 and 24. We are simply told that God the Father did not despise or abhor the affliction of His servant the way the people of Jesus' day despised Him. But instead, God the Father heard the cry of His Son when He called to Him. And this... This is the basis for all true worship. The basis for your worship and my worship and the worship of the world is that the Lord Jesus Christ has been heard by His Father and He has been raised from the dead and He promises to return. This is the foundation. This is the heart of all true worship. And in Revelation chapter 5, verses 7 to 14, we get a glimpse of this foundation. And this is what John saw and recorded for us. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the foundation for every song that you sing. This is the foundation for every prayer that you pray. This is the foundation for every sermon that you hear and for every sermon that is preached. This is the foundation for every hand that you raise in worship, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised from the grave and He is seated by the right hand of the Father. And one day, He will sit on the throne and rule and reign forever and ever. And friends, can't you see... Can't you see from these verses that the psalmist makes it clear that God does not turn away or despise those who suffer? Oh, at times it seems that he's deaf and unconcerned, but that is simply not true. We all must remember that there are higher purposes to our suffering than what we can see with our physical eyes and what we can understand with our brain. And because of Christ's resurrection, he has transformed suffering which transforms our worship. I found Dale Ralph Davis so helpful with these verses. And in his book, Slugging Along in the Paths of the Righteous, he says this. Listen carefully to it. It's so helpful. Have we ever thought that our condition is so gross, so unlovely, so repulsive, that God could not stand to touch it? Have we perhaps imagined that he might well despise both the affliction and the afflicted? Is this text then not a balm in Gilead when we are walking in thick darkness and heavy trouble? If Messiah was not finally cast off in his most extreme distress, it is likely we will be in, is it likely that we will be in any of our lesser troubles? If he at last knew God's smile, can't we expect to see the same once more? So the delivered one passes on this testimony to you and to me. He has not despised and he has not detested the affliction of the afflicted. And you can carry this text with you the next time you're in the pit. That's it. Friends, the resurrection of Christ transforms our worship so that we can say, Like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can worship Him. And I want you to know this morning, based on the authority of the Word of God, until you have a personal relationship with God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot worship. You don't have the ability to worship. You can only worship once you know Christ, because the resurrected Christ transforms and fuels and changes our worship. Well, we not only see that the resurrected Savior fuels our worship. In verses 25 to 29, we see that the resurrected Savior fuels our missions. Look carefully at this text. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. And in these verses, we see that God is not only the object of praise as He was in verses 22 to 24. He's the source of praise. Look at how verse 25 begins. From you, God, comes my praise. And notice what happens in verse 25. It is no longer a congregation worshiping. Look at what verse 25 says. Now a great congregation has gathered in worship. And then in verse 27, you see that the worship of the triune God and His great work of salvation spreads from the disciples and the nation of Israel. Look at it carefully. To the ends of the earth as Gentiles remember and turn to the Lord. And as all the families of the nations worship this glorious saving God for His resurrected Son, Spurgeon says in the treasury of David, in reading verse 27, one is struck with the Messiah's missionary spirit. And what is being recorded here in these verses is a fulfillment of Psalm 86, 9, where the psalmist says, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For as verse 28 of this psalm reminds us, the Lord... And no other is the king of the universe. Now notice carefully in verses 27 to 29, there is a small word that is repeated four times. It is the word all. And it emphasizes the fact that there will not only be people from every nation worshiping this triune God. There will be all kinds of people worshiping this triune God. Look at the text. The poor and the wealthy will gather to worship. The weak and the dying, the strong, they will all worship. The young and the old, all will bow down before King Jesus. And friends, isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul taught us at the end of his great Christological passage in the book of Philippians as he summarized Christ and his work In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And can't you see right here in Psalm 22 in verses 27 to 29. David is prophesying that what Paul proclaims in Philippians 2 will one day take place. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. These verses in Psalm 22 are a preview of the ultimate fulfillment of Revelation 7, verses 9 to 12. Where John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne and And around the elders and the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And these verses in Psalm 22 are a glimpse and a picture of what the book of Revelation describes. Now, I want you to notice something else significant in verses 25 to 29 not only will there be praise in this great congregation verses 25 and 26 tell us that vows will be performed before those who fear God what in the world is he talking about well the word vows that he uses refers in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus And in the book of Deuteronomy, to the praise that one owes Yahweh for answering his prayers. And we've already established here at this point in Psalm 22, that that is one of the reasons why Christ is praising his Father. Because his Father heard his prayers and cries from the cross. So what are these vows? Well, when you study Leviticus and Deuteronomy... These vows of praise were to be delivered along with a peace offering. And so this sacrificial offering would actually become a communal meal. Now listen carefully, the imagery here is so, so powerful. And so while the sacrificial animal was roasting on the altar, the one who brought the sacrifice would stand beside the altar and tell the people what God has done for them. And then once the sacrifice was over, unlike other sacrificial offerings, part of the sacrifice was kept. And it was given back to the one who made the offering. And then the one who made the offering would invite their family and their friends and their servants. And the poor and those who were in their community who had experienced the same things that they had experienced to come to the table and to sit down and have a meal with them. They were not to keep their happiness to themselves and to their children, but they were to invite all of the needy to come and partake of the meal of God's faithfulness to them. Can you not see... What is being described in these verses in the context of of the resurrection of Christ? In verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. And what the psalmist is teaching us is that because of Christ's death and resurrection... Those who turn to Him in faith and repentance of their sins can sit at the table of Christ and eat of the gospel feast and be satisfied with the knowledge that their sins have been forgiven, that they have been restored to the God who created them, and they can stand without fear in the presence of God and His glory and His holiness, and they too can live forever because Christ lives forever." And this is exactly what Jesus proclaimed in John 6, 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And in these verses in Psalm 22, we see the fulfillment of the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended back to heaven. And while it appears that the world is not seeking the Lord and bowing before Him, but rather everything in the world seems to be resisting Christ and hostile to Him and His church, these verses tell us that there's coming a day when Jesus will reign over all the earth and both Jews and Gentiles will come together and sit at His table and feast forever. That's why Revelation 11.15 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever and ever because Christ was forsaken and suffered because he prayed to the father and was heard people like you and me from every tribe every nation Every language, every tongue, every social status from the farthest corners of the globe will turn to worship God. That's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, well, friends, this picture. Of the communal feast. This picture. Of a table with people. Gathered from every walk of life. With one thing in common. The resurrection of Christ. Is the joy. That Christ saw. As he hung. On the cross. And don't you see it? Don't miss it. If you know Christ. You were a part of that joy. That joy that helped him endure as he hung there forsaken, suffering for your sin and mine. Spurgeon said of these verses in that last happy interval before he actually gave up his soul into his father's hands, his thoughts rushed forward and found a blessed place of rest in the prospect that as the result of his death, all the kindreds of the nations would worship before the lord and that by a chosen seed the most high should be honored he thought of you he thought of me as he hung and died in our place and friends this resurrection it fuels missions it fuels our relationships My favorite definition of evangelism that I've ever heard, and it fits beautifully in the context of this passage, in the idea of this communal feast and meal, is it's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And can't you see that heavenly table in glory? When we're gathered with all of the saints of the past, all throughout church history, and we're seated at that table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, And we're eating together and we look around and it's just a table full of people who've told other people where they found bread to eat. The bread of the Lord Jesus Christ. Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge were the two oldest children of Princeton Seminary professor Charles Hodge. And they wrote a letter and gave it to Mr. James Eckerd on June 23rd, 1833, as he was preparing to graduate seminary and go to the mission field. And this letter that a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old penned summarizes and describes well this missionary emphasis of Psalm 22. And they wrote this letter not to Mr. Eckerd, They wrote it to those he went to minister to. And this is what they wrote Dear heathen, that's how they begin. The Lord Jesus Christ hath promised that the time shall come when all the ends of the earth shall be his kingdom. And God is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man that he should repent. And if this was promised by a being who cannot lie, why do you not help it to come sooner by the reading of the Bible and attending to the words of your teachers and loving God and renouncing your idols, taking Christianity into your temples? And soon there will be not a nation, no, not a space of ground as large as a footstep that will want a missionary." My sister and myself have, by small self-denials, procured two dollars which are enclosed in this letter to buy tracts and Bibles to teach you. Archibald Alexander Hodge and Mary Elizabeth Hodge, friends of the heathen. Why could a ten-year-old and an eight-year-old write a letter like that to people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ? Because the resurrection of Christ Changes everything. The resurrection of Christ is the fuel for missions. The resurrection of Christ is the fuel for evangelism, friends. It is the fuel for your unbelieving spouse. It is the fuel for your unbelieving children. It is the fuel for your unbelieving parents. It is the fuel for your unbelieving relatives. And when you have experienced the resurrection of Christ, it changes everything. It changes how you view other people, or it should change how you view other people. And you just become one person telling another person where they found bread to eat. And because of the resurrection. Table fellowship, which brings Christ and his people together, has always been a central part of the life of the church. We see it in the book of Acts, just as the church was begun to form in Acts chapter 2, they broke bread together. It's not just for Baptists, friends. You understand Presbyterians are going to be at the table too. It's not just for Baptists. And as a result, because of the resurrection of Christ, we should have a desire for God to fill more and more seats at His table through our missionary efforts for this feast. We should have that desire. And I believe strongly in the fact that in the local church, God calls people out of bodies of believers, just like this one, to ministry and to the mission field. And as I was studying, and preparing, and praying through this text, I realized it had been a long time since I had issued that call. It may be that God is calling someone in this room this morning to full-time ministry to serve Him. To leave everything with abandon and give your life to Him because of His resurrection and how it's changed you. And you can do nothing else. You need to go and tell other people where you found this bread. He may be calling some of you to the mission field. He may be calling you to full-time missions. He may be calling you just to go on a mission trip. He may be calling some of you to go across the street to your neighbor. To go to your relative. To share the hope that you have in Christ. I couldn't stop thinking about this as I was studying this passage. So I I guess I'm going to go ahead and say it. Lord, forgive me if I wasn't supposed to. This idea of a communal meal... Through the resurrection of Christ. I just couldn't get the picture out of my head as I was thinking about this passage of Scripture and this sermon. And I was thinking about my life. And my wife's spiritual gift is feeding people, This is what she loves to do. And we'll have people at the house. And now she'll, she'll be like, How many do you think we should have? Well, just, two's probably enough. Just, introverted introverted and she can't stand to see an empty seat at the table and she will go through the house and find every seat in our house that she possibly thinks could fit at that table so she could get more and more people to the feast and i'm like oh that won't be comfortable and there's not enough room that everybody's going to be crowded no 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 more more it makes the feast that much more enjoyable. Well, can't, can't you see it, friends? Can't you picture heaven? Can't you see that picture? Or am I the only one that can see it in the text? Huh? I mean, are you awake and alive this morning? Can't you see it? Can't you taste it? Can't you see what it would be like on that day and that meal? Not less seats at the table. More and more and more. We can crowd them in. We can fit them around. You know the greater part about it? God has chosen a people for himself before the foundation of the world that will be at that table, and every single seat will be filled because of the resurrection of Christ. That's why I can preach to you today with absolute boldness, absolute confidence, absolute assurance that this word is truth. Because it's not my word, it's his word and he's faithful to complete it and fulfill it. And even people in this room, in this very moment who don't know Christ as their Savior, I believe with all of my heart that God can take this simple word that's being preached to soften your heart, to open your ears, to open your eyes and draw you to Jesus Christ because his table will be full. While well, the resurrected Savior not only fuels our worship and our missions, finally, he fuels our preaching in verses 30 and 31. Prosterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. After his suffering, The psalmist shows us that Jesus looked into the future to see people not yet born. Do you see it in the text? People not yet born hearing the greatness of God through his cross and his resurrection. And he uses the word posterity. Do you see it in uh, verse 30? It refers to generations yet unborn who would come and serve the triune God because of the faithfulness of previous generations to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Now listen to me. If you're a Christian in this room this morning, and by that I mean that you have confessed your sins to God, you've turned from your sins, and you've trusted in Christ and His work on the cross for your salvation. If you're a Christian, This text says that you have a responsibility to teach the next generation about God. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Do you see it? There's not an age limit on it. So that when I get to retirement age, I no longer have to teach or tell the next generation. Wrong. You can't retire from this. The day you retire from this is the day you go to glory. Every Christian has a responsibility to pass it on to the next generation. And I haven't told this story probably in years. But here I am, almost 51 years old, and I can still remember it like yesterday. My dad would drive us to church every Sunday morning, and he would take the same route to church every single week. And he would go up the hill and wind up into Greenmont Hills and cut across Greenmont Hills to get over to Route 2 to miss some of the traffic in the other direction. And as you wound up the top of that hill and turned and started to go down, you came to a stop sign. And as sure as I'm standing on this platform every single week on the way to church, he'd pull down at that stop sign and he'd stop. And I know what was coming. He'd say this. You know son. That's what he'd say. You know son. The most important thing you'll ever do in your life. Is trust Jesus Christ. To be your savior. Your mom and I can't do that for you. Only you can do that. It's the most important thing you'll ever do in your life. And then he'd make the turn. And on we go to church. And every single week like clockwork. You know son. You know son. You know, son. And what was he doing? In his own way, not a perfect way, but in his own way, he was reminding me every week of what mattered most. And every generation since the first century has had people whom Christ has purchased with His blood, and they've told the generation behind them about Christ and how He's purchased them with His blood, and they've told told the next generation, and they've told the next generation. And look at the text. Look at how the text ends. What are they supposed to tell? That He has done it. That He has done it. Do you see what Psalm 22 is saying? He has done it. Do you know what that phrase is? It's the last phrase that Jesus said as He hung on the cross. It is finished. Right here in Psalm 22. He is declaring that all of the work that needs done for your salvation and my salvation, for the salvation of your children, for the salvation of your grandchildren, for the salvation of your great-grandchildren, it has all been done. It is finished. What is finished? Justification is finished because when Jesus died and hung on that cross, God, the father, poured out all of his wrath for the sin of the whole world on his son. And that sin was your sin everything you've committed in your past, everything that you've already committed today, everything that you're going to commit tomorrow in the future, every single sin in your life, past, present, and future, it was all poured out on His Son. And He hung there and He bore every bit of it in His body on that tree. And He bore it so that you wouldn't have to bear it. But not only did He do that, He died and satisfied God's wrath for all of that sin. And he rose from the grave. And the Bible says that the other part of justification, it's not that just all of your sin was put on him. It was that all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his goodness, all of his holiness, it was all put on you. So that when God looks at you when you're in Christ, he no longer sees you in all of your sin. He sees his son. That's justification, friends. He sees you just as if if you've never sinned. Do you believe that? Can can you understand that? Wouldn't it be wonderful to feel like you've never sinned? The Bible says you can. You can in Christ. Christ makes you, in God's eyes, as if you've never sinned. Now listen carefully to me, because this is going to probably make some of you mad. Listen carefully to me. There's no priest in all the world that can make that for you. There's no ritual that you can do that can make you justified like that. There's no sacrifice you can make. There's no penance you can make. There's no gift you can give to the church that would make you justified like that. Only Jesus Christ can justify you, forgive you, and make you right with God. And that's why Jesus cried out as he hung there, it is finished. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing that you can do. In fact, I'm going to say this to you this morning. If you try to do anything to what Christ has done to add to it or to help it, you distort it. You make it ugly. You miss the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that simple. That Jesus Christ did it for you. He paid it all. All to him you owe. And all you have to do is believe, confess, turn, and receive. He's done it. He's done it all. It's finished. He accomplished it. And you're to take that truth. And you are to give it to the next generation. I wonder, I wonder this morning if we're really doing that. We hear all this stuff in the news about deconstruction, about people no longer interested in Christianity. And I wonder if part of the reason is because we're not doing what this psalm tells us to do, what Jesus told us to do, to tell the next generation that he's done it. Could you think with me for a minute, parents and grandparents? I know you talk to your kids. I know you talk to your grandkids. What do you talk to them about? What's most on your lips? Is it sports? Is it their activities and their interests? Is it school? When's the last time you talked to them about Christ and what he's done? When's the last time... You've specifically, intentionally had a conversation with your children and your grandchildren about their salvation. Oh, you bring them to church, and they hear all the right things, but do you just leave and say, well, that's it. I'll take them again next week, and the church will tell them, and the church will tell them, and the church will tell them. No, you're to tell them. You're to have those divine moments with your kids like my dad had with me. You know, son. You know, daughter. And I'm just telling you out of love, if you find it more easy to talk to them about sports and their other activities and interests than you do about the Lord, then I just want to challenge you as your pastor out of a heart of love for you, you better check where you really are with Christ. Because if he's changed you and you've got a desire for worship and you've got a desire for serving him and you've got a desire for your whole family to be involved in that, here's what I know. I am not a perfect parent by any means, but I guarantee you that my kids knew what was important to me. I guarantee it. And I'm telling you, your parents and your grandparents or grandchildren know what's important to you. Are you telling the next generation about the resurrection of Christ and how he's changed your life and how he can change their life? He's done it, friends. What what more could you tell them? Well, the most important question about this psalm is what does it mean to you? Christ died on the cross. We've seen it last week. He rose from the grave. We've seen it today. And he died and he rose from the grave to save sinners just like you and me. So what does it mean to you? Has he saved you? Have you turned from your sins? Confession and repentance and belief? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? Has he changed your life? Or will you leave this place today and say, well... Pastor was fired up today. That was another good sermon. And go on unchanged, unmoved, business as usual, same week in, week out. Go out my week. Come back again next Sunday and do the same thing over and over and over again until Jesus comes and it's too late. Now, I'm asking you this morning, has the cross of Christ changed your life? It's that simple. Is your life different? Is your family different? Is your marriage different? you parenting different because Jesus Christ has changed you. Psalm 22 is the psalm of Christ's crucifixion. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the Savior's resurrection. Our Lord has done his work. It is finished. Let's pray.